Hello, and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza, and I'm here today with Jyoti Gulati Balachandran, who is Assistant Professor of History at Penn State. Welcome to the podcast, Jyoti. Thanks, Shireen. It's a pleasure. Today, we'll, we'll be discussing Jyoti's new book, Narrative Pasts, The Making of a Muslim Community in Gujarat, 1400-1650, which was published by Oxford University Press last year in 2020. Our conversation today will follow Jyoti's argument about how Gujarat becomes a region and how the history of Gujarat is shaped by Sufis and the broader Muslim community of Gujarat. For those of our listeners who may be less familiar with where Gujarat is or the history of Islam in India, could you tell us a little bit about how... Muslims came to Gujarat and the history of Islam in Gujarat unfolded? Sure. So Gujarat is in the northwestern part of the Indian subcontinent along the Arabian Sea. And this particular geographical location of Gujarat uh, actually facilitated Gujarat's links across the western Indian Ocean world to you know, East Africa, the Red Sea region, the Persian Gulf region. And Gujarat was, of course, also connected overland uh, through uh, a variety of trade routes that went all the way into Central Asia and also connected Gujarat to North India and uh, further south in the Deccan as well. So I think as we as we think about Islam's presence in this region of Gujarat, it's important to be aware of these trans-regional connections in, within which Gujarat was very much embedded because it is through these connections that some of the earliest Muslim merchant communities were established along the coast of Gujarat, but also further in the interior. So, you know, as early as the 8th, 9th, uh, 10th centuries, we have a variety of uh, Muslim merchants of various ethnicities establishing trading communities, fairly autonomous trading communities uh, in different parts of Gujarat. So that's one way of thinking about Islam's presence in Gujarat, because along with these merchant communities, you also have the establishment of mosques and other kinds of infrastructures uh, that uh, the Muslim communities needed in the region. And they were often supported by the local rulers, many uh, many of whom actually were non-Muslim rulers, but they benefited from the trade that these Muslim merchants brought into the region. Another way of thinking about Islam's presence in Gujarat is by uh, looking at the history of the Ismaili community. And there are several centers in Gujarat, especially in Patan, where you see Ismaili community, you know, thriving uh, in Gujarat. Thinking more politically, you know, 13th century, early 13th century is the time when you have a sultanate that gets established in Delhi. There are these Turkish military commanders who establish their rule in Delhi. And over the course of the 13th century, they try and, you know, make several incursions into the region of Gujarat, you know, because you know, Gujarat is a very, very important place uh, for for trade. Um, they're not very successful until about the late 13th century when the Delhi Sultan Alauddin Khalji uh, is able to uh, conquer large parts of Gujarat. And he actually makes Patan, which was the regional capital, kind of like a garrison town that becomes kind of a provincial capital for for the Delhi sultans. But the reach of the Delhi sultans is still very much limited. So as as we'll, I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about uh, later on, uh, 15th century is, is really when you see the establishment of, uh, of a sultanate ruled by uh, you know, Muslims in, in Gujarat. And that really starts a kind of a fairly new chapter in the history of this region as it concerns the presence and expansion of Islam. 
I, I remember one of the most exciting things I first learned about the medieval history of Gujarat was these multilingual inscriptions that uh, Hindu rulers and other non-Muslim rulers would kind of say, uh, okay, yes, these these Muslims can have their masjid. And it just felt like it was from a different, <laughs> totally different time and world. So before the 15th century and the establishment of Gujarat Sultanate or the Muzaffarids Sultanate in Gujarat, was Gujarat considered a region? If not, then how did it gain a regional identity and how did Muslims play a role in that? You know, I always find the question of defining a region very, very difficult because this is clearly not something that, it's not an a priori category. Right? Um, region is something that is historically constructed. Now, in the time period that we are talking about, Gujarat is understood in a variety of ways, and it depends on what kind of materials you're looking at. As you just pointed out, we are, we are talking about a place that's multilingual, that's multi-ethnic, that's multi-religious. Uh, it's also topographically quite uh, diverse. So you have, uh, you know, part of it, which is kind of this, you know, salt desert, you have, you know, you have mountains, you have uh, you have uh, central plains and river valleys, which are fertile for agriculture. And then, of course, you have port cities along the coast. So depending upon where you're looking at and whose perspective you're looking at, Gujarat could be defined in a variety of different ways. But very broadly speaking, for our concerns here, uh, there is the, the, you know, the Sanskrit term uh, Gurjaratra, which is understood by the 13th and the 14th century in a political sense. Right. This defines a political territory that is ruled over by the local Chalukya rulers. So there is a clear, clear sense that this, and even the, the texts that I look at, uh, the authors of many Persian texts that I uh, researched for my book, often invoke uh, the phrase mulke Gujarat, and here by mulk, they're really evoking a, a political understanding of Gujarat over which a specific ruler exercises his sovereignty. And in the context of uh, the regional sultanate that comes into being uh, in the 15th century, you know, oftentimes the rulers are also identified through the port city of Kambayat, uh, which is often, which is also known as Kambay. And uh, so they are like, you know, sultans of Kinbaya in, in, in Arabic sources or sultans of Kambayat. So th there are those kinds of connotations that we, we have at that time that, that are connected to kind of a political sense. Of, uh, of, what is, of what is Gujarat. What I try to do in my book is uh, look at a specific set of sources. And uh, these Persian sources, and to some extent Arabic, are written by Sufi uh, masters, their disciples and descendants. And they imagine Gujarat in a very different kind of way. Right? In, in their perception, Gujarat is the dominion of certain Sufis and their their descendants and their successors. So they are sort of defining Gujarat as a spiritual uh, realm. And it is from there that I kind of make this argument in my, in my book, again, going back to you know, what you were asking about, you know, when does this region come into being? To some extent, it depends upon you know, who you are asking that question in this, in this time period. So in my book, I, if I were to pose that question to these Sufi texts, I would say that it's really the beginning of the 15th century that there is a sense of belonging to a space defined in, in, in terms of a kind of a spiritual dominion 
but also connected through multi-generational links and social networks that comes to invest Gujarat with a specific kind of meaning. Something I really enjoyed about the book was reading your detailed and and really analytically sophisticated understanding of these Sufi texts and kind of criticizing the the term hagiography and kind of trying to disaggregate that to see, okay, what are these genres of malfuzat and manakib and tazkira that um, so many medieval historians have uh, have relied on to understand medieval India, but have just, um, as you explained, kind of mined for facts rather than tried to understand them as as a whole. One of the major Sufis who I, I really feel like I know well <laughs> now that I've read this book is Sheikh Ahmed Khattu. You, you really show how important his role is in the formation of, um, of the early community in the end of the 14th and the 15th century. I would love to hear more about the role Sheikh Ahmed Khattu and his disciples played in, in this kind of understanding of the region that Sufis started to have in the 15th century. Mm. Well, that's a great question, Shireen. And if I could actually begin by first responding to the point about hagiography that you raised. So I think it's really important and we can talk more about this later. Because when we say Sufi texts, we we have to be aware that there is actually a considerable variety of texts in terms of genre, in terms of you know authorship and authorial like intentions. Um, you know the time period they are written, what each of the texts is in conversation with. Um, you know because by the time you come to the early 15th century in Gujarat, there is a there's a there's a you know whole uh, diverse set of texts written by Sufi masters in other places in, in Delhi, and they also start to be uh, written in various places in the Deccan. So one of the reasons why I, instead of using the term hagiography, hey, uh, actually try and show how each of the texts that I'm working with is very different in the way it's conceived is because it allows me to actually trace historical change in these texts. Because many times texts written by Sufis can read very form formulaic and very kind of synchronic. Uh, you have the same kind of stories, the same kinds of narrative tropes. But I think once we start paying attention to, okay, why at this particular point somebody's writing, uh, somebody's compiling the oral teaching instead of writing a biography of a Sufi, uh, you know, I think kind of being sensitive to those kinds of questions and the narrative strategies that differ from one text to the other can really help us. Uh, kind of tether these texts much more closely to their material world and see how how contingent those uh, choices of genre and narrative strategies can be. Uh, but to come back to Ahmed Khattu, I mean, you are absolutely right. Um, and I have often thought about writing a biography on this fascinating figure. And it's fascinating to me because the more I learned about Ahmed Khattu uh, while doing my research, the more I was surprised that he actually has not received the kind of attention that many other Sufis from North India and the Tekken have. You know, we do not have as, as much textual inscription of his teaching and life um, and, you know, in, uh, around the time that he, that he lived. The kind of memorialization that he generated, that his life generated for the next several generations um, uh, is, is just incredible. It's hard to miss, whether you're looking at later Mughal sources who are talking about Sufis from Gujarat or you're, or you're looking at later Sufi texts produced in Gujarat itself. It's, it's, uh, it's 
pretty much a given that they're going to talk about Sheikh Ahmed Khattu in some capacity uh, at, at, at some point. And Sheikh Ahmed Khattu is a very fascinating figure because uh, also because um, he's actually not that well known in the late 14th century. So you would, it's kind of unlike unlike places like Gulbarga in the Deccan, where you have a prominent Chishti, you know, Muhammad Gesudaraz, achieve uh, a lot of prominence. And of course, you have multiple Sufis in Delhi uh, achieve a lot of prominence. And, you know, you hear about them, uh, you hear about them a lot um, in, in, in contemporary texts, and you know a lot more about their lives, you know, and where they came from, and you know about their illustrious lineages and the great teachers they studied with. In the case of Ahmed Khattu, he just seems to be, uh, if I could say, just a very average Sufi who grows up in uh, kind of in, in northwestern, you know, what what we refer to as Rajasthan um, uh, in in the Indian subcontinent, in a in a village called Khattu. Khattu is very close to another city, Nagore, which lies at uh, important like east-west kind of trade routes and trade routes that also connect this region. Uh, to North India and to the Deccan. So we hear about Ahmad Khattu growing up in this region. Of course, even before he gets to this region, there is a story about how he was actually born in Delhi and uh, kind of got lost in a dust storm and eventually landed up with a caravan of merchants in this northwest part of the Indian subcontinent. But, you know, we have to remember that much of this recollection of his life happens later on um, in the middle of the 15th century. But it's still, it's still possible to, to understand how we are not looking at, uh, at a Sufi who had a very illustrious lineage. Because when he's growing up in Khattu, his spiritual mentor is Baba Ishaq, who is from the Maghrabi Silsila. You know, Maghrabi Silsila, again, is not a very well-known Silsila in the Indian subcontinent. Here, you know, you have the Chishtis, you have the Sohravardis, you have the Qadiris. You know, you often don't talk about the Maghrabis in the context of South Asia. So again, so even his kind of, uh, even his spiritual master doesn't seem to be somebody who is very well-known at that time period. Um, and then... It, due to a variety of circumstances, including the death of of, of Baba Ishaq, uh, we find Ahmad Khattu traveling um, to you know Central Asia. He travels to Iran. He travels to the Hejaz, and of course, many of these travels are also kind of imagined travels. Um, uh, but uh, but ultimately, we 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 come to a point that he finds himself in Gujarat, just around the time when the future Sultan of Gujarat, the fu the future founder of Gujarat, Muzaffar Shah, is trying to find his feet in the region. And you know this uh, this future Sultan. At this time, he's Zafar Khan. He served the Delhi sultans, and he had come to Gujarat to deal with some some uh, rebellions. Uh, and when he encounters Sheikh Ahmad Khattu, Zafar Khan really wants Ahmad Khattu to stay in Gujarat because actually Ahmad Khattu had planned to go on to the Deccan to find patronage there. And Zafar Khan says, hey, no, please, I'll provide for you. Please stay here. Find a nice spot and and." you know, find your residence here in Gujarat. And Sheikh Ahmad Khattu is uh, his first, one of his first question is, is like, why did you not help Delhi? Why, what are you doing in Gujarat? Why are you not helping Delhi? Because at this time, towards the end of the 14th century, Delhi is uh, under attack. It's being sacked by the Timurid army. And 
it's very clear that Ahmad Khatu is very fond of Delhi because he often made frequent trip frequent trips to Delhi where he hung out with other scholars and other Sufis and often conducted a little bit of commerce as well on the way and Zafar Khan's reaction to Ahmad Khatu's question was that well if I had left for Delhi this whole of Gujarat would uh, would slip out of my hands. So it's very clear that Zafar Khan knows that there is nothing left for him in Delhi, that he has come to Gujarat and this is, this is the place where he needs to carve out his political authority. And as he's thinking of carving out his political authority, he realizes the importance of having a spiritual mentor that would provide some kind of legitimacy to his rule. And this is where you see the beginnings of uh, you know, how Ahmad Khattu then over the course of the next several decades would really become a prominent player in the history of the Gujarat Sultanate. And this is where you see the coming together of state and society, right? coming together of state and community, a certain kind of collaboration between Sultan and Sufi to give this region in the 15th century a much more uh, composite identity. Sheikh Ahmed Khattu really did seem to choose a great spot, um, which uh, to this day seems to be quite well attended. Um, and that was the Sarkaj complex, which is now a burial complex with his tomb and the tomb of many other important figures from this period, just outside of Ahmedabad, uh, the city that became the capital of the Gujarat Sultanate. Um, this encounter you described between Ahmed Khattu and, uh, and Zafar Khan from his uh, Malfuzat is so, so interesting. And I would love to hear more about how you decided to further study this important relationship between Sufi and Sultan through the actual sites where these texts were written and where where Sheikh Ahmed Khattu's grave continued to be a site of great political importance even in the centuries following his death. I think in some ways, even before I actually visited Sarkaj uh, to then be blown away by the kind of the grandeur of the site and how extensive the Sarkaj complex is, I had come across several passages that indicated the central role that Ahmad Khattu had played from the very beginning. So I just gave you an example of this initial meeting with the future founder of the Gujarat Sultan, Sultanate, of the Zafar Khan and Ahmad Khattu. And later on, when Zafar Khan's successor, Ahmad Shah, built the capital of Ahmedabad, and by this time, Sheikh Ahmad Khattu has settled in the vicinity of what becomes Ahmedabad, he does find a very, very uh, cool spot for himself, for his residence. It has a lake nearby, so it's it's really wonderful. Um, but so I had already, you know, come across several passages that 
again evoke this very very foundational role that was ascribed to Sheikh Ahmed Khatu in in the Gujarat Sultanate. So if I could read you uh, one passage from uh, actually this is a, a kind of a court chronicle if you like it's called the Mirate Sikandri it's a history of the Gujarat Sultans uh, written uh, written by uh, Sikandar Manju he is uh, in Gujarat in the in the late 16th uh, early 17th century so this text is composed in 1611 and this is usually kind of a to go kind of text that scholars uh, often use because it gives very very detailed descriptions of what happened during the Gujarat Sultanate so uh, I'll, I I you know I'm going to read this passage to you again it's a, for those of us who work on Gujarat again uh, are very familiar with with this with this passage but I want to read this to you because again it shows the very very important foundational role that Sheikh Ahmed Khatu played in this case in the actually very foundation of this new capital of Ahmedabad so Sikandar Manju writes it is said that the founding of the city of Ahmedabad is attributable to four persons of the same name Ahmed first the pole star or qutb of sheikhs and aliya sheikh ahmed khatu who lined out with his own blessed hand the west side second sultan ahmed who lined out the east side third sheikh ahmed and fourth molana ahmed both pious men of the time who respectively lined out the north and north and south sides and all the four ahmeds have ever since been praised for by the blessing of their instrumentality the city outshines all the cities of the earth and you know it's kind of very interesting because in this passage we actually really know about two of the four ahmeds that laid the foundations of the city it's sultan ahmed and ahmed khatu the other two ahmeds uh, sheikh ahmed and molana ahmed we actually don't know who these who these people were except that they were pious pious men now interestingly it was only when i started reading the oral compilations of ahmed khatu's life and teachings and his uh, his you know his kind of biography or taskira that i realized that this kind of relationship this kind of foundational role actually first is is first inscribed in these texts written by Sheikh Ahmed Khatu's disciples so um the author of Mirat e Sikandri is uh, you know of course he's writing at a much later time and he has a whole variety of texts that he's working with and it's very clear that uh, his text is not the first time that that this this role is narrated you can actually go closer to the time that sheikh ahmed khatu lived and already during his time he was being memorialized as a foundational figure for the gujarat sultanate i think this relationship between sheikh ahmed khatu zafar khan and eventually imad shah and the um the many rulers who would continue to patronize the sarkhaj complex uh maybe surprising to scholars who study sufism in other parts of the world including uh, nearby delhi and other parts of north india where i think the relationship between sufi and sultan was more competitive it may also be very interesting to historians listening to this to know that you visited this complex and you you spent time there and and that your analysis of the layout of of um and patr- history of patronage of this space formed a part of your book so i'd love to hear more about um how you came to this kind of history and the inclusion of of a broader sense of archive 
By the time we come to the early 15th century, it's actually not uncommon to have sultans and Sufis um, in, in, in roles that are not necessarily competitive, but they kind of draw upon each other's authority and, uh, and resources, whether they're spiritual resources or financial resources. Right? So Ahmed Khatu's shrine, for example, is not the first and the only one where you see uh, sultans providing for the financial support needed to construct a shrine like that. Of course, as and I'll talk about that in a minute, in the Sarkage complex, sultans themselves build their tombs uh, within within the complex. So uh, so while, you know, this kind of, uh, this idea that Sufis and sultans were like in conflict as, you know, something that it kind of keeps emerging in texts that are written by Sufi masters and disciples in different places. Uh, but it's very, very clear that as the patronage of tomb shrines becomes a very common feature across polities in the Indian subcontinent, there is a sense of kind of collaboration. And, and uh, you know, and, and uh, to be fair, that competition does not go away. So even in the case of Ahmed Khatu, there are there are points in time when there are certain kinds of conflict between uh, what the Sufi would like to see and what the the reigning Gujarat Sultan is is doing. But we do see in uh, a much more collaborative uh, stance between the Sufis and the Sultans. Um, to yeah, it was you know to to go back to the Sarkage uh, complex. Uh, and as I mentioned, I was I was really truly blown away. Like, I had been to several other Sufi shrines, uh, but I have not come across a Sufi shrine which was uh, which had uh, these royal tombs, you know, royal like tombs of uh, sultans, but also there are women like royal women uh, within the Sarkage complex. Again, the idea of sultans burying themselves close to the shrine of a Sufi is not completely unheard of by this time period. But what's distinctive in the case of the Sarkage complex is that those royal funerary sites are within the Sarkage complex. So once you enter, there are there is there is of course the the burial site of Sheikh Ahmed Khatu. There is a mosque. Then uh, you know then you then you uh, to one side you'll find the inclusion of the tombs of. Uh, of three Gujarat sultans, a few royal women. Um, then there is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a fine site by a lake. Um, and recently that lake has been again filled with water. Um, and you have a, a sort of like social spaces, like, you know, platforms where uh, people would gather together and, you know, and, 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 and talk. What I was struck by when I visited the site. I was struck by the the various placards that described the various sites within the Sarkesh complex. And they seem to split the Sarkesh complex into three very, you know, kind of almost like mutually exclusive uh, uh, realms. So they talked about how the site has a religious realm. So you include Sheikh Ahmed Khatu's shrine in the mosque in that realm, and then there is a political realm, which is um, you know which is the the tombs of these sultans and their women. And of course, there are also palatial structures that were added to the site. And then there are certain spo social spaces, the social realm, like the pond or other spaces for for congregation that does not necessarily serve any religious or political purpose. And I felt that this that this this didn't sit very well with the way I was reading 
the text written by Sheikh Ahmed Khattu's disciples and the court chronicles produced um, under the Gujarat sultans, where I didn't get the sense of these very distinct realms, that the religious and the political were distinct realms. So so I was, you know, so in some ways kind of visiting that site really, and, you know, having read those texts really drove home the point that this is these there are seamless transitions in this site it's not like you one you leave one realm and now you know the significance uh changes it's really to be able to experience this site you really need to experience it, experience it as a whole and i often actually found it very interesting that i would see uh, pilgrims or uh, visitors to Sheikh Ahmad Khatu's shrine pay their respects to the Sufi shrines and then walk over to the tombs of the sultans and actually, you know, say their prayers to those tombs. Now, where do you see that? You know, you don't see that often where uh, where, where sultans are, you know, that, that, you know, you're seeking blessings from the sultans or you're praying at the tombs of the sultans. And I uh, kind of, it was very interesting for me to see and to kind of really think of the Sarkej complex in tandem with the way I was reading these texts. Um, uh, and so, so in many ways, my, uh, my visit to the complex multiple times and kind of rereading of these texts, I felt like really reinforced this point that Sheikh Ahmad Khattu and the Sultanate, they are, and, and, and the political Sultanate, that they are really part of a single story, that you cannot separate one from the other. Earlier in the interview, you mentioned some of the most famous Sufi orders in India, the Sohrawardis, the Chishtis. Uh, in your book, you actually explore some of these other Sufis who also made their name in, in Gujarat and had a lasting impact on the formation of this, of this region. You also visited the burial sites of these, these other Sufis. So can you tell us a little bit more about them and how they fit into this picture? I would consider two other Sufis who are contemporaries of Sheikh Ahmad Khattu to be actually very important in the story about the about 15th century Gujarat. Uh, these two other Sufis uh, belong to the more prominent, uh, definitely more prominent than the Maghribiya Silsila. Uh, they belong to the Sohrawardi Silsila. Um, and one of the very well-known figures of the Sohrawardi Silsila in India uh, from a time period a little before 15th century is, uh, is Jalal. Aluddin Bukhari, uh, who's, uh, you know, travels between Uch, uh, which is in modern-day Pakistan, and Delhi uh, quite a bit. He actually acquires quite a reputation for, 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 being, a, for uh, being a great traveler all around the uh, Islamic world. Um, so we have one of his descendants uh, move to Gujarat actually around the same time as Sheikh Ahmad Khattu. Uh, this is Burhanuddin Abdullah, uh, who acquires the title of Qutbe Alam in Gujarat. And he's much younger, of course. He's much younger than Sheikh Ahmad Khattu. In fact, he um, he actually uh, you know becomes uh, Sheikh Ahmad Khattu's student for a while uh, when he moves to Ahmedabad. And along with him, uh, his second son, uh, Sirajuddin Muhammad, who becomes famous as Shah Alam, um, is is another prominent figure from the 15th century. In fact, when I have when I was working on my research for my you know PhD dissertation, it was really oriented around the lives of these three Sufis. Uh, not to say that there were not other Sufis in 
other places in Gujarat in the 15th century. They definitely were there. Uh, but these three definitely seem, they, these three seemed to be the most prominent one in terms of uh, their textual production, in terms of the kinds of roles that they were, that, that they were assigned in the Gujral Sultanate. And as you mentioned, their shrine complexes as well that uh, were often sponsored by by the rulers in Gujarat. So I did visit the shrines of uh, uh, both Qutb Alam and his son Shahi Alam. Uh, Qutb Alam is buried in the neighborhood um, uh, of, uh, it, it, both, both of them are actually buried in what are now neighborhoods of Ahmedabad, uh, one in Watwa and the, and, the, and the other one in Rasulabad. I should probably add that unlike Sheikh Ahmed Khattu, for whom you see a degree of textual production happen soon after his death, which I actually call in my book the first narrative mo moment. Um, in the case of the Saurabhardi, there's not much textual material that uh, seems to have been produced around the lives of uh, Burhanuddin Abdullah Sirajat and Muhammad. There are references in later 17th century texts that uh, that there was a compilation of Friday assemblies of Sirajat and Muhammad that were compiled, but again, the manuscripts are not extant anymore, so we really don't know how extensive uh, those were. So. In the case of the Soravardis, what you see is actually the beginnings of a shrine complex in some ways precede the textual comp textual compilation around the lives of these Sufis. So, um, you know, and this textual compilation, as I just mentioned, happens a little bit later in the, in the late 16th and the 17th century, which is uh, what then I call the second um, narrative moment. Um, now, if we were to just kind of think about, okay, so how do the shrines differ from the sort of cage complex? Um, they are definitely of a much smaller scale. Uh, they, of course, also happen. Uh, they also have a mosque complex within where the where the shrine is located. But you do not, uh, of course, see the tombs of any royal men and women in either of these shrines. Um, what is distinctive about one of the shrines, at least, and this is Burhanuddin um, uh, Abdullah's shrine in Watwa, is uh, the presence of a relic. And it's a very strange relic. Uh, and we know about this relic, again, from several textual sources. Uh, actually, even Abul Fazl later on in his Ayn-e uh, Akbari would, uh, would, would talk about this relic. It actually looks like a piece of wood, but it's, it's not wood. Um, and the story goes that one night when Burhanuddin uh, Abdullah got up to say his prayers, uh, he stumbled upon an object, and uh, he said, "He said, you know, what is it? Is it rock? Is it a piece of iron? Is it is it wood?" And when you know, uh, when they kind of looked at this object, it was actually all of it, all of them. So all of the elements that that the Sufi had uh, thought of uh, were actually present in this in this piece. So this becomes an important relic. It is talked about in several texts, even Abul Fazl writing under the Mughal Emperor Akbar uh, would, would actually talk about how uh, how you know this how this relic is situated in the shrine of uh, Burhanuddin Abdullah so that is kind of one distinctive because you don't see such relics in the case of Sheikh Ahmed Khattu but otherwise uh, Sheikh Ahmed Khattu's tomb complex in Sarkage is clearly way more extensive than the other two shrines i should also mention uh, an important difference here in terms of who succeeded uh, Sheikh Ahmed Khattu or these sort of worthies at their tomb shrines. Now, Sheikh Ahmed Khattu never married. He never uh, had, uh, 
you know, a son who could also be his spiritual successor, unlike the case of the Soravartis, where you actually have a clear, unbroken line of descendants soon after the death of Burhanuddin Abdullah and Sirajuddin Muhammad. And these descendants then are also the caretakers of the shrine complexes. So over the course of, you know, the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, Sheikh Ahmed Khattu's shrine does not occupy the same kind of reverence that the other two shrines continue to attract because they are maintained, they're very much part of the communities that develop around these two shrines. This later second narrative moment that happens kind of as these Sufi lineages continue of the Sohrawardis and as things continue to develop in Gujarat, what shifts happen in the political landscape and how does that change the way this earlier first narrative moment is kind of received in the later literature, including Mughal historiography? Yeah, so as I was saying, there is this seven, late 16th, 17th century narrative moment where you see a lot of textual production by Sauravardi descendants. Now, all of that textual production is taking place at a time when the Gujarat sultans are no longer around. Right? Is uh, We're talking about Gujarat becoming a province of the Mughal Empire by the kind of the late 16th uh, late 16th century. It is it is in the it is in this changed political context that we see the Sauravardi's investing their energies in producing a variety of texts. So in terms of what's going on in Ahmedabad, there is actually a very, very uh, kind of funny reflection that Emperor Jahangir has about his stay in Ahmedabad, which happens in the early 17th century, around 1618. And remember, this is about 200 years after the city of Ahmedabad was founded, in which you know, Sheikh Ahmad Khattu had played an important role. And this is, this is what um, Emperor Jahangir had to say about Ahmedabad 200 years since its, uh, its foundation. And here I'm using uh, William Thaksin's uh, translation of the Jahangir Nama. I am perplexed at what beauty or goodness the builder of the city, that is Ahmedabad, saw in this godforsaken land to have built a city here. Why have others after him spent their precious lives in this dust heap? The air is poisonous, the ground has little water and is sandy. The water is particularly foul and tastes awful. The riverbed next to the city is always dry except during monsoon. The wells are mostly brackish and bitter. The reservoirs located on the outskirts of the city are milky with washerman's soap. Outside the city, in places with greenery, the plains are nothing but breeding grounds for thorns, and it is obvious how good a breeze that blows over thorns can be. O thou paragon of all goodness, by what name shall I call thee? 
So it's very, very clear that Jahangir is not having a very good time in Ahmedabad. He only has uh, all these, you know, complaints about his stay in Ahmedabad. Though at the same time, he's actually very quick to recognize how the Friday Mosque built by Sultan Ahmed Shah is a splendid building. He does go on to visit the shrines of Sheikh Ahmed Khatu. He goes to the shrine of uh, shrines of the Suravardi Sufis as well. And actually, this is where he also meets with some of the descendants of the Suravardis, offers them rope and other kinds of support. So, you know, one could one could argue about what the, you know, what the air and the water in Ahmedabad were like in the 17th century and how the buildings uh, built by the Gujarat sultans were were crumbling. But even in, uh, in this kind of very pessimistic reflection by Jahangir, you can clearly see that uh, the importance of, uh, you know, the the aliyah of Gujarat, uh, especially Ahmed Khattu and the and the Soravardis, uh, you know, they they continued to to be very very important, and the Mughals were not there to kind of dislodge the social importance that came with being uh, the descendants of these this these prominent Sufis. In fact, uh, if you if you were to read chronicles that are written in Gujarat uh, in the 17th century, and also uh, Mughal chronicles. Um, Everybody would, would talk about what a great city of Islamic learning Ahmedabad was, a great city of spiritual practice Ahmedabad was. So even even when the Mughals uh, make Gujarat their suba or province, it's very clear that this kind of past based on uh, reverence for certain Sufis from the 15th centuries continued to be uh, recognized and continued to be important to the new rulers um, in Gujarat. And another thing I want to highlight is that, you know, many of the Sufi biographical texts that are written in the Mughal Empire, uh, you know, they, uh, many of them are able to talk about the Aliyah of Gujarat or the Sufis from Gujarat precisely because since the 15th century, there is a texted past around, especially around these 15th century Sufis that has been generated by their disciples and descendants. So if you were to look at somebody like um, uh, Abdul Haq Tahlavi writing Akhbarul Akhyar, where he's talking about various Sufis from different parts of the Indian subcontinent, um, the, the presence of these you know, what I call these narrative moments in Gujarat that generated a certain kind of textual memory about 15th century Sufis is is, is critical to the work of, uh, of these Mughal uh, scholars who are writing with a much more pan-Indian framework in mind. And so the significance, uh, or I guess an additional significance of this regional history is that it could then be incorporated into these pan-Indian frameworks used by Mughal imperial historiography? Yes, that's correct. And, you know, again, as I mentioned before, it's not like there are no other Sufis present in Gujarat, right? Um, my focus has largely been in and around Ahmedabad. If you were to move out of Ahmedabad, you'll find various other Sufis and you'll find several other shrines. In fact, in um, a lot of uh, texts produced in the Gujarat uh, sultans, you know, we find references to the Gujarat sultans paying their respects to Sufis in Baroj and you know, Sufis in, in other places as well. But I think what becomes uh, critical for the, the Mughal 
Mughal project, uh, or, or rather the project that Mughal scholars are invested in with the Pan-Indian framework, is that uh, you cannot write about these Sufis much in much detail until there has been, uh, as I you know, this kind of texted past generated in that particular in that particular region. So uh, you know, somebody like Abdullah Dalavi is actually reading the text produced by Sheikh Ahmad Khatu's disciples to then talk about Sheikh Ahmad Khatu in his in his text. And that's how this kind of memory of the Sufis from Gujarat gets memorialized in later texts. In addition to the the continuous Mughal interest of these these sort of now iconic like Mughal historians that you're mentioning, um, it seems that uh, the famous architect Le Corbusier also <laughs> Um, visited the Sarkage complex and and had some some great things to say about it. I think this this book is going to add so much to people who live in Ahmedabad's own sense of their city and the medieval history uh, that animated it. The history that you've covered in this book really shows us uh, a different picture than um, some of the modern signs, as you mentioned, the the plaques around the Sarkage complex that try to sort of separate the religious history from the political history. And so I think we have a much stronger sense of how these are intertwined and inextricable. Personally, as somebody who is Muslim and, um, and Gujarati and with my ancestors coming from Gujarat, I find the significance of this book to be immeasurable, uh, especially in a political moment when Muslims are increasingly cast as as foreign, as other, and as part of these kind of foreign invaders in Indian history, uh, a sort of blight on Indian history. And I think what I what I really gain from this book is a very detailed, very rich, and and grounded and textured story of the different kinds of belonging that anim- animated the space and, and created a sense of regional belonging um, for a lot of Muslims in Gujarat. Thank you so much for coming on yeah. the podcast, Jyoti. This was such a such an interesting conversation. And um, no, I really enjoyed our conversation, Shireen. Thanks for this. Uh, thanks for this privilege. It's a great opportunity to talk about my work. Listeners who would like to learn more about this topic can visit our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where Jyoti has kindly provided us with some images and some further titles for reading. Thank you for listening and see you next time.